Hello, and welcome to Addicted to Murder. This is Courtney, licensed professional counselor with over a decade of experience. And this is Trisha, and I'd like to just blow on a doodle sack just once. What is a doodle sack? Doodle sack is another word for bagpipes. And I think that it would be really neat to just give a doodle sack a good blow. Interesting. Thank you. I can see you being a doodle sacker. I, I agree. I think I would be an excellent doodle sack player. So... And there's that. Well, anyways, welcome to, welcome to part two of Harvey Kerrigan, Addicted to Murder, as Courtney just said. Um, our social media stuff is coming your way. Here it goes. Addicted to Murder podcast at gmail.com is how you can email us. At Addicted to M is our Instagram. At Addicted to M podcast. Why do I always screw that up? I'm sorry. At Addicted to M podcast is our Instagram. And Addicted to Murder podcast is our Facebook. Correct. Okay. I think I got it all. Oh. I put us on Twitter, but we have no followers, and I don't know how to use it. So feel free to twit a tweet, a twat, tweet a, a Twitter twat, tweet. Um, at us uh, at addicted to murder podcast on Twitter. We'll figure out how to use it. Yeah, I mean, I I can ask my friends' children who are um, much more hip than I am, being a forty-year-old, almost forty. Right, not okay. quite forty yet. Yeah, almost. So, uh, anyways, there's that. Yeah, and now it is time for our much-anticipated question and answer segment. Indeed. So today I get to ask the question. All right, I'm ready. So my question for us today is, Trisha, other than true crime, what is the last book you read? V.C. Andrews. I think, is what's on my nightstand right now. Oh. Yeah. You know, all of those, I've read all of those incestuous books, like the Flowers in the Attic series and the um, the other ones. I can't remember them now, but they mm-hmm. are amazing. So twisted and fucked up, but love them. Takes me back to my teenage years where they felt like I was reading something forbidden. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, it's like... <laughs> So, so truly messed up to all of those series, like all of them. But yeah, that's, I have like Pearl in the Mist or something like that on my nightstand right now. I think that's what I was reading before um, my, my other books. How about you? Um, so the last, the book that I've sort of been reading, it's called What I Carry. And it's kind of like a... It's not about STIs. <laughs> it's not. Okay. Um, and sort of like a, a young adult fiction novel, um, but it's about... A girl who is about to age out of the foster system and kind of looking at how she created a life where everything that was needed could fit into basically one small backpack to move between foster homes growing up and how to move on from that mentality. Corny, I hate to say it, but I think you and I need to like maybe look at looking at some more fun things. I mean, the other book I read was about polyvagal theory, so this one seemed more interesting. I don't interesting. even know what that means, but okay. All right. I picked the more fun one of the two. Okay. Well, there you have it. <laughs> no wonder we're drawn to this shit. <laughs> it's all connected, yeah. right? Okay. Well, good question. It's a good question. So, moving on to... Part two of Harvey. So last week we discussed the har- the childhood of Harvey Kerrigan, how he was bounced around by family multiple times, and eventually sent to live at a reform school. 
And then after turning 18, he got out of that reform school and he enlisted into another institution, the U.S. Army. And there he was stationed in Alaska. There was one drunken night where he attempted to rape and did indeed kill a middle-aged woman in a public park. He then, later on, attempted to rape another woman who was able to flee and assisted the police in Harvey's capture. Harvey confessed to killing the women only after he was assured he would not receive the death penalty, which in Alaska was hanging. But he was convicted of murder and then he was sentenced to death. So Courtney, what do you think is going through Harvey's mind at this time? Also, based on what we know, what psychological conditions might he now have as an adult? So, you know, based on what we've learned about Harvey so far, I would imagine his thoughts were kind of pretty pragmatic about the whole thing. He was an intelligent young man, you know, even if he was lacking knowledge about you know, society and their expectations, um, or he just didn't care about them. Um, so he was probably just trying to figure out, like, okay, how do I get out of this? kind of a thing. And then, you know, diagnostically, at this point, it seems appropriate um, to give Harvey the diagnosis of antisocial personality disorder. Um, and we've talked about it a little bit, but kind of as a reminder, um, APD describes a person who consistently shows no regard for right and wrong and ignores the rights and feelings of other people. <coughs> people with antisocial personality disorder tend to antagonize, manipulate, or treat others harshly, or with what's called like callous indifference. So they just, they don't give a shit about other people, essentially. Um, they show no guilt or remorse for their behavior, and individuals with the APD often violate the law, becoming criminals, because, you know, they don't care about the rights of others, mm -hmm. and they may lie, behave violently or impulsively, and often have problems with drug and alcohol use. And also, um, I'm, I'm going to say this as if I know it, so correct me if I'm wrong. Someone with this type of disorder also um, gets off. Like, they, they don't um, get the adrenaline rush from normal things that people get, so they might get it from being violent or criminal. They might feel some sort of emotion that they're seeking. Yes, yeah. So the idea of, like, thrill-seeking behavior mm -hmm. um, is common with people with APD. Right. So, yeah, that, like, sense of excitement... Right. And uh -huh. so it makes sense when they do become violent and do violent things if they're seeking that, you know, thrill-seeking feeling. Right. Exactly. Which Harvey is probably doing. Clearly. Okay. Well, thank you for that. Um, Harvey is reported to have been shocked by the verdict. Remember, he was assured that he would not get the death penalty as long as he admitted to the murder. He thought he would maybe do a lot of jail time, perhaps learn a trade so that he could resume life if ever was paroled. So after four months in Anchorage, he was transferred to Seward, Alaska, where he stayed for 10 months. In December 1950, Harvey's case was up for appeal, where Harvey's defense attorney argued that Harvey's confession should not have been admissible as it was made with the understanding that he would not get the death penalty. After two days of deliberation, the judges begrudgingly agreed. Begrudgingly agreed. Their interpretation was that the law was not followed, and so they had no choice but to overturn the conviction of murder. Justice Spoon is quoted as saying the following. This is kind of a long quote, but this is what he said. We should be utterly naive if we overlooked the cold, hard fact that we are not dealing with a simple, childlike mentality. We deal with a cold-blooded rapist who was clever and cunning enough to hide his criminal trail with great skill. He did not require the services of an attorney to know that he did not have to talk. 
The record shows that he was advised of the Callan inquiry and fully understood that he could remain silent from the moment of his apprehension and detention on a criminal charge to the very end of the legal trial. His age and the extent of his literacy justifies the most careful appraisal of his understanding of the issues confronting him in the later Showalter matter, Showalter matter so the woman he killed. It will not do to rake and scrape through the whole gamut of possibilities to find one plausible reason to believe that he was a dull clod rather than a pretty smart criminal. So I was unable to find Harvey's IQ, but based on his avid reading in childhood and what the courts know of him, they believe him to be a very intelligent individual. The only evidence that really they had besides him being selected in alignment by a man who saw him in partial darkness was his confection. He left no other traces of evidence. So, Courtney, another fuck up by the system. It's so frustrating when things like this happen. Either way, if it implicates an innocent person or it enables a guilty party to walk. What are your thoughts? It's always frustrating when somebody who's so obviously guilty and dangerous, you know, gets off because of a technicality. And this is why it is so important that law enforcement members follow protocols like to the letter. And, you know, something to consider now is, you know, this all took place before there were those written protocols, right? There wasn't the Miranda rights. They didn't exist yet. Um, and so it's now a good example of why they do exist and why they're needed. Yes. <clears throat> Well, after this appeal in Alaska, it actually went up all the way to this, the federal Supreme Court, where they agreed with the lower courts based on what is called the McNabb-Mallory rule. This is what the Cornell Law School says about this rule. Quote, a doctrine of criminal procedure based on the U.S. Supreme Court ruling in McNabb versus United States in 1943 and Mallory versus United States 1957 that one requires officers to promptly present defendants before a judge or a judicial officer after arrest and two requires judges to exclude any confessions or evidence produced by police officers during the time period between arrest and the defendant's initial appearance hearing. So basically, because Harvey was never presented to a judge before, his before he made his confession, it shouldn't have been allowed. Mm -hmm. And that Marshall kind of coerced him to confess prior to him being presented to a judge. So that confession that he made should not have been admissible in court. And that is what this law says. And um, the Supreme Court agreed with that. And so it was thrown out. So there we have it. His murder conviction was thrown out by the Supreme Court as well. He can't be tried again because of double jeopardy. He didn't get off scot-free, however. He was convicted on the attempted rape charge of Dorcas, and he got 15 years for that. So after four months, he was transferred to Alcatraz. There's a documentary on IMDb, the one that we've been talking about, um, called The Serial Killers, and Harvey is featured in one of the episodes. He is recorded as saying that Alcatraz was a hardcore place, much more so than the other places he had served time at. He got out after nine years of Alcatraz and was paroled in 1960. So, Courtney, Harvey is now 32. He has spent most of all of his life, and certainly most of his adult life, in prison. What can you tell us about a person such as this? So, tying to what we discussed um, on last week's episode, the word institutionalized comes to mind. 
Harvey living for so long in the prison system, especially starting at age 11, would probably feel the most comfortable in this setting, right? The strict rules, the structure, and supervision would also help him control his impulses and urges as there would be little or no opportunity to act on them. Also, you know, being surrounded by other people who have also committed crimes and or acted in an antisocial manner would kind of serve to normalize his behavior and possibly even teach him some new things. So it can be really difficult for people who are used to being incarcerated to adjust to life on the outside, particularly because there are just so many choices they have to make about things like their routine and managing their emotions. And in prison, those decisions are just made for them. Well, and then throw on top of that all of the advances in technology and um, geography as far as like buildings popping up and all that stuff that they're missing when they're behind bars. So when they get out, it's like, where am I? And what is that? And what is that? You know, I mean. Right. Yeah. And then chances are at Alcatraz, he did not encounter very many women, either as prisoners or as guards. So, again, also that, you know, not developing those social skills of going through your 20s. Right. So let's recap a little bit. All of his uh, pretty much interactions with women growing up until the age of 11 was bad, you know, abusive or, um, you know, rejection. Then he was institutionalized until he was 18. Then he went into the army. Then he's back in prison. So, yeah. He, He had maybe four years outside. He's got no concept of how the world works. Right. And how women and men are supposed to be with each other. Exactly. In a functioning relationship. Okay. Well, after he was released from Alcatraz, he went back to Minnesota, where within months, he was arrested for burglary, burglary, an assault with intent to commit rape. He was found guilty for burglary, but there was not enough evidence for the rape charge. He was sent to Leavenworth, Kansas to serve a 2,086-day stay in that federal prison and then another suspended sentence for two and a half years in a Minnesota penitentiary. So he got out in 1964. So it was because he, you know, part of this was because he was a parole violator at this point, right? Um, And then guess where he goes? Seattle. So, Courtney, what are your thoughts? I feel like there's a pattern emerging here. (laughs) Yeah, all these murderers go to Seattle. Um... (laughs) So after eight months, or eight months after arriving in Seattle, he was arrested yet again for second-degree burglary and was sentenced to serve 15 years in the maximum security prison penitentiary. Hey, this is where... Oh, the penitentiary... Okay. That was the part where I missed out the... Okay. So eight months after... Eight months after arriving in Seattle, he was arrested yet again for second-degree burglary and was sentenced to serve 15 years in the maximum security prison in Walla Walla. Courtney, this is where Gary Ridgway is currently, this Mm -hmm. penitentiary. Fun fact, the first penitentiary in America is Eastern State Penitentiary in Philadelphia. It's beautiful. You should go. I made my cousin take me once. Um, but the reason it was built was that so prisoners could dwell on their sins and improve themselves, like doing penance. So that's where that term comes from, or the name comes from. But I don't think it really seems to work. So, 
Yeah, not so great. (laughs) So during Harvey's stay in this facility, he earned his high school diploma and then took several college courses in psychology and sociology. And he was a very good student. He was very bright. He received A's on his papers, um, and some of these papers were about the sexual psychopath and personality disorders and other mental health subjects. He got out in four years for good behavior, and now he's 41. Right. It is said that Harvey was fixated on teenage girls at this time. I'm thinking most likely just to the fact due to the fact that when he was institutionalized, he was, you know, a preteen. So, um, Courtney, what do you think? I agree that the young age that he was first locked up plays a, a role in his preference for younger or teen girls. I mean, being incarcerated, that in itself is a traumatic event. Um, and there's, you know, a lot of evidence out there that people can become sort of emotionally and socially stunted at the ages in which they experience trauma, right? So it would be really normal for an 11 or 12 year old to be lusting after teen girls. Um, and that's the age that he was first locked up, Mm -hmm. right? So, you know, another factor to consider is that, you know, Harvey's mother was very young when she had him, only 20. And if we're to believe Harvey, he was molested by a babysitter, who also typically young women. So it would make sense that um, he would target women in this age range as also like partners, but also victims. Yeah, that makes sense. <clears throat> Harvey figured he wouldn't be able to get a young girl to date him. He was now middle-aged and due to prison, he definitely looked ravaged. Um, I advise you to look up his prison photos. He is scary looking. He was also very big and very strong. Most likely, he was very intimidating. He did somehow get Sheila Moran to marry him in 1969. She, however, could not take all of his ex-con friends over at the house, and he would always take her car to drive God knows where. He was arrested during their marriage. Um, Shocker, but was out within a year. Harvey was also violent during his marriage. Sheila recalled a time when they visited um, one of Harvey's uncles in British Columbia and he attacked him. He pummeled him, leaving bruises. Uh, Sheila offered to call the police, but Harvey's uncle said that he would just deny the attack, so there really was no point. Sheila was also terrified of Harvey. He beat her, and there was a time when she actually thought he would beat her to death. Harvey claims the incident she was speaking about was um, he got really angry and he blacked out. And he only recalls coming to and seeing her and her children running out of the house away from him. He then said that right after this, he went to go make breakfast where he turned around and saw God. And God told him to kill his wife. Harvey went down into the basement where he waited for his wife to come home with a hammer. But she never came down. However, his stepdaughter did come down and uh, the next morning, and Harvey didn't beat her because God did not tell him to kill his stepdaughter. He then packed up, took off, and the marriage ended six months later. Harvey would miss his stepdaughter as she was more to his liking than her mom. She was the age he desired. Courtney, we've not seen this type of domestic violence in the other killers we've covered, Both Jerry Brudos and Gary Ridgway had wives, and neither of them was this violent with their wives. Can you go over why Harvey may have been so violent? You know, there there are a number of factors, potentially, um, that play into Harvey's level of violence and, you know, his engagement in domestic abuse. 
first of all, like it could just be kind of part of his personality that he is just more aggressive than the other killers we've talked about. Um, but secondly, you know, Harvey is also the only killer we've talked about who spent any sort of time in prison before they were branded a serial killer and caught. You know, violence is almost necessary to survive in prison. So by this time, having spent so much time there, it would just kind of seem like second nature to him. That's how you interact with people. I guess, yeah. Um, Harvey speaks of God telling him to kill his wife. We can't say for certain that God did or did not talk to Harvey, but for the sake of this podcast, let's let's say God did not. Can you talk to us a bit about the mental excuse me, the mental conditions that Harvey could have if he's being honest about this? So if we assume that Harvey actually believes that God talked to him in that moment, then some things we might consider would include a brief psychotic episode or maybe like acute intoxication. It is possible for a person to experience symptoms of, symptoms of psychosis like auditory or visual hallucinations of God talking to you and, you know, losing touch with reality for only that brief period of time of, you know, several hours or days. I don't necessarily think this is what happened, but it's an option. Um, to me, it would seem more likely that, you know, this hallucination, which is what I would call it, was a result maybe of being intoxicated. He didn't say whether or not he'd been drinking or using drugs at the time, but he did have a history of alcohol and marijuana use. Yeah, he definitely imbibed quite a bit in alcohol. I mean, he was um, drunk when he um, raped or attempted to rape Dorcas, and I think he was probably also drunk when he murdered Laura. So Probably. It's mean, safe to say that maybe he, maybe he was... Um, something that was induced by alcohol. Mm -hmm. um, in 1972, Harvey met Alice Johnson. She was a divorced woman in her 30s, and they met at a cafe. She liked Harvey. Um, he must have been putting on the charm, and she was also lonely. So anyway, Harvey by this time had leased a gas station, and she was impressed by this. He told her he owned it, but really he didn't. Harvey moved in with her and her 11-year-old son, Billy, and her 14-year-old daughter, Georgia. Um, they were then married. The kids did not, did not like their stepdad. He especially was hard on Billy and beat him constantly. Georgia, the 14-year-old, was afraid of him. He made her feel anxious, and I can see why. Billy left within a couple months and went to live with his biological father. He couldn't take the beatings anymore. Harvey then turned his aggression to Alice. He would use his belt, he'd throw her across the room, and one time he belted her in the face and she needed five stitches. All this time, Harvey would drive off at night doing who knows what, um, as he did with his first marriage. So there's all this time we don't know what Harvey's doing, is mm -hmm. what I'm trying to get across. Right. So, Courtney, Alice stayed with Harvey. She made excuses. Um, where his first wife left, Alice remained. Battered women's syndrome, a real thing. Can you explain a little bit about why she may have stayed for so long? Her son was out of there, and her daughter only stayed because she was worried about her mom. So, battered women's syndrome is a very real thing, if not like a technical diagnosis from the DSM. But it's very closely related to post-traumatic stress disorder. And it's attributed mostly to women who have experienced pretty severe long-term domestic abuse. Women who experience this type of abuse can start to feel helpless and blame themselves for the abuse. 
They have intense fear of their abuser and sometimes can believe that he's kind of almost all-powerful and um, in a way will always know what's happening or be able to stop them from leaving or, you know, anything like that. And these women will often hide the abuse from friends or family because they're ashamed and embarrassed um, or they'll make excuses um, like you said, Alice did. And then something that people don't always think of with um, domestic violence is that abuse can also include things like keeping them isolated from friends and family, feeling like they have no one to go to, and um, controlling finances so they don't have any money with which to leave, and making threats about what will happen if they try to leave a lot of it. If you ever leave me, I'll kill you. Mm-hmm. So women in these situations stay mostly because they don't believe that they can get out of the relationship alive. I'm curious if Alice's first marriage had domestic abuse in it. I mean, just, I don't know. I guess if you, if you, if she came from a marriage that was more functioning, she might realize this isn't right and leave. So it makes me think maybe she had been through something like this before and just accepted it. Cause if you read that book, um, about her, she, she seems almost like fine with the, um, the arrangement. Right. Yeah. She's come to a place where she believes that she deserves it. And that she, and she does say that she loves him and all that. So anyways, Um, So, at this time, Harvey began to pester Georgia, the 14-year-old. He would sometimes force her to go on his rides with him, where he would touch her legs and insist she move closer. And one time at home, he picked her up and, like, threw her over his shoulder and started to take her into the bedroom. She was fighting back and, like, beating on his back. And she kept yelling, you know, my mom won't like this. Put me down. You're going to make my mom upset. So, this did get through to Harvey, and he put her down. But that was enough for her. She took off. I don't freaking blame her. Um, she ran away and she made it to her house, her father's house all the way in California. So Alice stayed. In fact, she thought it was better now that her children were gone. It was much calmer in the house. Um, thoughts? Harvey's a lot. He is a big fucking asshole. He really is just a big fucking asshole, isn't he? Mm-hmm. I would certainly not want him as a stepdad, husband, or really to have any association with him at all. He truly is the epitome of someone with antisocial personality disorder. You know, chronic criminal involved in many types of crime, no regard for the feelings or rights of others, and no remorse for his actions. But, you know, Harvey did not have the charm or cold demeanor or lack of emotion that, you know, a true psychopath has, like the Ted's of the mm-hmm. Jerry's, right? So, does that mean he's not a true psychopath? Correct. I don't believe he's a psychopath. Oh. Because he... I mean, he definitely has anger. <laughs> right, yeah. He, <laughs> yeah. He's able to experience and express yeah. emotions. Okay. So you can be someone with antisocial personality mm-hmm. disorder without being a psychopath. Okay. Okay. Because, yeah, he definitely shows emotion. I mean, um, anger. I mean, even he says that, like, in some of the ways that he talks, he talked in anger a lot. He acknowledges that. So this could be different, right, than the ones we've, you know, talked about previously. Right. Absolutely. You know, and I mean, in that Anne Rule book, too, um, 
it references him crying, mm-hmm. um, you know, when talking about certain things. And yeah, his wife, Alice. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> yeah. Well, cool. Something new. I mean, <laughs> right. <laughs> Still terrible. not great. No, mm-hmm. but it is. I mean, it's nice to like see something different. They're not all they're not all the same. Nope. I mean, everyone has a different story, takes a slightly different path. Um, Harvey is the most angry person I think we've looked at, at least um, uh, that we know of. You know, mm-hmm. there's enough data on him to and, and interviews and, and all that to know how angry he is. Right, absolutely. So You know, and I think also pointing out, just to point out that the other killers we've talked about for the most part, not so much Willie Picton, but um, they have had to make it out in the world and pass as normal. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Harvey, he never learned that he was supposed to do that. Yeah. He's a totally different kind of animal. Like, exactly. Literally, physically different, different altogether. So it makes him, I, I almost think that this um, anger makes him scarier. Right. It's more it's impulsive. T- it's more mm-hmm. predictable. It's it's motive for anything because he could be. <laughs> so, yeah. Exactly. Okay. Well, I think that's about it for today. We will pick up, um, I think, just one more episode on yeah. Harvey. Mm-hmm. Uh, get into more of what happens next. And um, it'll be a pretty graphic episode. So, yeah, viewer. You know, listener discretion advised. Yes. We'll we'll say that again next time. But anyways, all right. Thank you for listening. And, you know, hit us up on any of the stuff we talked about at the beginning. We'd love to hear from you. Yes. Yes, we would. See you next Tuesday. Bye. Bye.